This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, we continue our conversation about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover after 20 years of war. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. As former U.S. Ambassador Ryan Crocker states in an opinion editorial for the New York Times, quote, the United States' objective in Afghanistan has always been clear to ensure that Afghan soil is never again used to plan attacks against the American homeland, close quote. However, the fact that the Taliban are now back in control of the country raises serious concerns that they will likely provide a safe haven to transnational jihadist groups like al-Qaeda, which perpetrated the terrorist attacks on U.S. soil on September 11, 2001. How did the Biden administration miscalculate the ability of the Afghan security forces to withstand a lightning speed Taliban offensive, notwithstanding the faulty U.S. Taliban peace agreement, which the Trump administration signed in February 2020? Critics say President Biden was not obligated to follow through with the promise of a U.S. troop withdrawal. Despite having evacuated approximately 100,000 people since August 14, when the Taliban declared victory, U.S. President Joe Biden is attempting to stick to his August 31st deadline to complete the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. While he is planning for contingencies, President Biden says that, quote, each day of operations brings added risk to our troops, closed quote. As VOA reporters Patsy Widakuswara and Jeff Selden report, American troops in Kabul are faced with increasing threats from ISIS-K, the Khorasan Network, a self-proclaimed branch of the militant Islamic State group active in Central and South Asia. Well, for more analysis on the ramifications of the widely criticized execution of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, we turn to two distinguished regional experts. Ambassador Ronald Newman is former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, Currently, he's president of the American Academy of Diplomacy. And Michael Kugelman, he's deputy director of the Asia Program and senior associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center, and that's a policy group based in Washington. And both guests who are no strangers to the VOA microphones join me via Microsoft Teams. Ambassador Newman, I'd like to begin with you. As a seasoned U.S. diplomat and former ambassador to Afghanistan, you know the country and region so well. What is your reaction to not only the decision of the Biden administration to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan, but also the handling of the withdrawal. The decision itself is debatable. I am opposed to it, but it's done. The handling has been lamentable. There were three parts in the policy, the withdrawal of troops, the continued support for the Afghan forces, and political and economic support. The second part was really key to any kind of success, support for the Afghan forces. We did not do that. We had, you said, poor planning. There was no planning. There was absolutely zero planning for how we would carry out that policy before the president announced it. A lot of people tried very hard in DOD, Defense Department, to find ways to do this. It was insufficient. The shock of the announcement coupled with the incapacity in planning for it reinforced Afghan doubts that went back all the way to the signing of the Doha Agreement and hugely undermined the morale of the Afghan forces and were a major contributing factor to the collapse of the Afghan army. How is it that the Biden administration did not appear to imagine this worst case scenario? 
whereby Afghan security forces surrendered to or cut deals with Taliban and enabled the Taliban to overrun the country months, if not years, before the U.S. intelligence community had estimated. I can speculate, but I really don't know. I was in Afghanistan just over a month ago. I came back and had an editorial in the Washington Post saying that once the city fighting started, if it didn't hold, it could come apart very quickly. It could be a very messy evacuation. So I would say from my point of view, this is predictable in terms of Afghan history, where most wars have not ended with climactic battles. They've ended at a point when one side is so clearly winning that folks on the other side quit. But maybe people in the administration didn't do Afghan history. Turning to you, Michael Kugelman, the same question, basically, you have your finger also on the pulse of the government, which is known as quite corrupt and weak. And I'm sure that you saw the Taliban capture provincial capital after provincial capital after President Biden announced the withdrawal and gave a date certain. Why do you think that the Biden administration didn't see that or that they continued to think that there was a chance that the government and security forces you know, wouldn't collapse? Thanks, Carol. Clearly, U.S. officials over the years have known exactly what was going on in the sense that they knew that the Taliban was making continuous gains. Several years ago, the Taliban was seizing territory, including a number of areas relatively close to the provincial capitals that they ended up seizing just in the last few weeks. So U.S. officials knew that the Taliban was laying the grounds for something big down the road. And the U.S. knew that the Taliban had been able to seize significant numbers of weaponry, much of it from Afghan forces. And U.S. officials also knew that the Taliban was very successful in diversifying its sources of funding. So it was becoming an increasingly wealthy insurgency. So clearly, U.S. officials, and I'm not only talking about the Biden administration, I'm talking about previous administrations as well, knew that the Taliban was becoming increasingly potent. But indeed, yes, I am quite sure there wasn't anyone in the current administration that would have expected the Taliban to actually essentially be given the keys to Kabul even before the U.S. withdrawal had been completed. And I think there one could argue perhaps that there was a significant underestimation on the part of U.S. officials on just how significant the structural weaknesses and deficiencies of the Afghan state were in the sense that you had this ongoing crisis of corruption within the Afghan military forces, as well as a very troubling morale crisis, which led many Afghan troops to desert their ranks over the last few years. But I think that there just wasn't a recognition that all of those factors could lead to the extreme outcome that was seen in recent days. And I think another factor is that we know that U.S. officials over the years of the war have sought to really try to put a positive face on very troubling developments. And the Afghanistan papers have made this very clear. The war had become increasingly unpopular in the United States. And in the absence of significant gains or successes on the battlefield, I think that unfortunately, Washington has sought to make things seem better than they actually were. And that could have led to a situation where officials just were not willing to acknowledge in their own minds that you could have worst case scenarios play out down the road. Ambassador Newman, just a quick question to you sort of like a historical if. Do you think that we should have left that contingent of troops there and that that would not have been a contradiction for the Biden administration who wanted really to end U.S. involvement? I mean, how different is having troops in Afghanistan to conduct counterterrorism and stave off any kind of like a Taliban takeover? How different 
is that than keeping troops in South Korea or other places in the world where we have troops? Why do you think that, you know, he didn't see it that way? Well, Carol, I'm not in a position to get inside the president's head. He's had a lot of advice from every major allied power, Europeans, the U.S. military, the U.S. Institute of Peace study mandated by Congress all recommended that he keep some troops. He didn't see it that way. He continues to argue that he either had to get out and go much bigger. I think that is nonsense. Nobody told him that. At least I don't believe anybody told him that. That was certainly not the opinion of our military on the ground with whom I have talked. But this was his decision. Personally, yes, I think the decision was wrong. We did not have a strategy to win. That is something Americans really would like. We did have a strategy that kept a stalemate. We have elected to change stalemate to defeat. And so September 11 is now Taliban Victory Day, and it is in many ways Al-Qaeda Victory Day. And I think we're going to be sorry for that, but that's done. Well, that leads me to my next question, Ambassador Newman. Now that, as you say, we are where we are, the question is, now that the Taliban have taken over 20 years after the U.S. and coalition forces originally defeated them, how concerned are you that they will provide refuge to jihadist groups like al-Qaeda? The Taliban have never cut their ties with al-Qaeda. And within the Taliban, the Haqqani movement has even tighter ties with al-Qaeda than the sort of main Taliban. Haqqani, that's one of the things that came out rather clearly from Osama bin Laden's computers, was his trust in his relationship with the Haqqani group. So I don't really expect them to cut ties. They haven't done it so far. There have been UN studies and others. Exactly what kind of ties those will be, well, we'll, we'll wait and see. Over to you, uh, Michael Kugelman. Same question. Now that the Taliban have taken over 20 years after the United States had defeated them, how concerned are you that they will provide refuge to al-Qaeda? What is their relationship today with al-Qaeda? And couldn't al-Qaeda, in effect, reconstitute its networks rather quickly? Or do you have a contrary view? No, I share Ambassador Newman's skepticism that the Taliban will sever its relationship with al-Qaeda. This is a very deep, long-standing relationship that goes back quite some time. And of course, we know that the Taliban uh, happily hosted al-Qaeda's leaders in, in, in Afghanistan and refused to give them up. That's, of course, the cornerstone, I think, that highlights the extent of the relationship. And, you know, the agreement that the Trump administration signed with the Taliban, the Doha Accord signed last year, the only thing that it really demanded of the Taliban, in addition to not shooting at U.S. troops as they were to leave the country, was to deny space to al-Qaeda to plan and mount attacks on the U.S. and its allies. Now, it's hard to measure whether that indeed has or has not been done, but I think it's given that the Taliban has done nothing about its relationship with al-Qaeda. It's still strong. I imagine that the Taliban violated that aspect of the agreement in the sense that it has not denied space to al-Qaeda at all. Now, in terms of what that means for terrorism threats, certainly al-Qaeda is nowhere near the jihadist behemoth that it was in 2001. It's the shadow of its former self, I and mean, that's very clear. But the problem is that al-Qaeda continues to have close relationships with some of these smaller, more active, potent militant groups in Afghanistan and the broader region, the Taliban, for one, but also other groups, the Pakistani Taliban, as well as some other Pakistani terrorist organizations positioned in Afghanistan. And these are groups that can help al-Qaeda by providing it with arms, with fighters, with money, whatever the case may be. And indeed, I think that al-Qaeda could be in a position to grow itself out more, because presumably it would not be on the receiving end of the number and intensity of U.S. and NATO airstrikes that had been the case in previous years. So that suggests that it could 
become a big threat again. But I wouldn't necessarily suggest that we're looking at a possibility of al-Qaeda posing a threat to the U.S. homeland. I don't think we're there. And final point on this, you know, ISIS is another group that we talk about in the context of Afghanistan. I don't think we should overstate the threat posed by ISIS. First of all, the Taliban is rivals with ISIS. It's aligned with al-Qaeda, but the Taliban has been actively fighting ISIS on the battlefield in Afghanistan for the last few years. So the Taliban is not going to go out of its way to empower or provide space to ISIS. I am not sure, at least at this point, that uh, ISIS has the capacity to pose a direct threat to U.S. interests uh, outside of Afghanistan, and certainly in the United States. But certainly, if we see a deterioration of the security environment in Afghanistan in the coming weeks and months, if war were to return, then certainly that's an environment that ISIS would be able to exploit to its advantage and perhaps be in a position to carve out more of a stronghold and pose a threat. I think the biggest threat will be to the regional players, to the countries bordering Afghanistan, just because the Taliban takeover will really galvanize all of these militant groups, the Pakistani Taliban, India-focused terror groups, they will be galvanized and may want to try to essentially be inspired by what the Taliban did in Afghanistan and try to carry out more attacks in the region. So that's clearly a concern for regional governments. Before we go to a break, I want to get Ambassador Newman to weigh in on ISIS Khorasan. To what extent do you think they're not such a big threat to the United States, but they are big rivals, evidently, of Taliban? And the Biden administration is worried about that they might sabotage the latter part of this evacuation of Americans and allies. I agree with Dr. Kugelman that they're not an enormous threat at this point. After all, they were a threat all the years since they first appeared in Afghanistan, and they did a variety of things when we were there in an embassy. I think the larger threat with ISIS is twofold. One is, depending on what happens to Afghanistan, how much the Taliban consolidates control, or you have civil war, they have room for expansion. The other is that since a good piece of ISIS Khorasan is ex-Taliban, they become a rallying pole for Taliban who feel that the movement is not sufficiently radical. And it may not be a threat to us, but to the extent that we think we're going to have influence and get them to pay more attention to women's rights, education, things, simply the fact that they have radical people within their own ranks and that those people have a place to go if they think the Taliban leadership is getting too soft, that is another problem. You're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. My guests are Ambassador Ronald Newman, from whom you just heard. He's former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan, currently President of the American Academy of Diplomacy. And Michael Kugelman, he's Deputy Director of the Asia Program and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center, a policy group here in Washington. And we're discussing the Biden administration's handling of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the geopolitical implications of the Taliban takeover. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. Here's a shout out to all our loyal listeners and followers in Afghanistan. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, back to our program. So back to you, Ambassador Newman. Let's talk about any kind of fallout with our allies. You know, President Biden recently met with counterparts of the G7 and NATO, many of whom were upset about not being properly consulted in advance of the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. And they were not very happy about the chaotic and precarious manner in which it is taking place. So how will this messy withdrawal affect the U.S. posture 
on the world stage? And number two, will the United States be able to recruit local foreign service officers and other allies and spies, for example? Will that effort be hindered as a result of the perception that the United States perhaps doesn't truly appreciate them because the manner in which the withdrawal and the evacuation is being handled, it looks like we're abandoning our allies. Yes, Carol, there is a funny correspondence between the policy of Mr. Trump and the policy of Mr. Biden, that Trump was sort of nasty often to our allies and ignored them. Biden went out and consulted broadly and then ignored them. That was true before the decision on withdrawal. And it was true when he had the G7 meeting. My understanding is that everybody wanted the date of the final withdrawal to be expanded beyond August 31st. He heard that and ignored that also. So what you have is a pattern which now goes into two administrations of sort of not paying much attention to allies. And I think that will have an effect, that allies have to think, if this is the case, how do we cope with a United States that just isn't going to return to its old role on the world scene, even though one doesn't exactly know what its new role will be? There are still plenty of places we're going to work together. President Biden talked about a number of those in terms of a common approach to the Taliban. But he's leaving a lot of scars. Michael Kugelman, leaving a lot of scars. How do you see the effect of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the manner in which it's being done? What kind of effect is that having on our allies, not just our Western allies, but other allies, local allies who help our embassies around the world, the perception that perhaps our deeds don't match our words in terms of how we treat them? Yeah, so I don't think the decision of Biden to withdraw itself has had an impact on U.S. credibility. You know, public opinion in the uh, in the NATO countries outside of the U.S. had been, I think, just as negative about the war as in the U.S., if not more so. And I think that the other NATO countries are ready to go as well. Maybe not as quickly as Biden decided to go, but still, I think they could have lived with the decision and would certainly not have thought the worse of the U.S. for it. But clearly, it's the botched execution of the withdrawal, which has really undermine U.S. credibility among its treaty allies and partners. And, you know, for the very simple reason that because of that, you know, the diplomats of NATO member countries in Afghanistan, they have been put in a very vulnerable, dangerous position, just like U.S. diplomats. So that's clearly is something there as well. But I would agree, I think, with what Ambassador Newman said, that this doesn't foreclose any opportunities for building better cooperation between the U.S. and its allies and its partners or anything like that. I think that so long as the Biden administration continues to emphasize the principles that it claims it wants to project, meaning bringing back multilateralism, trying to restore U.S. relationships with its alliance partners, as long as it makes clear that it's trying to do that. And I think we'll see this particularly in the context of efforts to counterbalance China. I think that would ease some of the ill sentiments, so to speak. But certainly, I mean, the events of the last 10 days have, I would argue, undercut U.S. credibility in ways that this administration could not have expected. And I think that, you know, many U.S. treaty allies and partners have seen what were supposed to be Biden administration's strengths apparently become weaknesses. One is experience. This is the most experienced administration we've had some time in terms of foreign policy, but it botched the execution of the withdrawal. Empathy was something else that was supposed to be a strength. Biden said that he wanted to do foreign policy with empathy and compassion, and yet the messaging from the administration has seemingly been very impersonal and even cold in terms of not really acknowledging the trauma that Afghans and Afghan civilians are going through now. That has really impacted, I think, a lot of U.S. treaty partners in the wrong way. 
I would even go a little further, Carol, while not disagreeing. But, you know, when you see the British Parliament have a public session to rail against President Biden on both sides of the aisle, you've got something a little bit new and different. A very interesting point, Ambassador Newman. And as we close, I want to ask you both about how you envision the Taliban governing. So, Ambassador Newman, from what you know of the Taliban, what do you think their governing strategy will be? They may not have changed much over 20 years, but they certainly have learned, you know, communication techniques, using charm offensive, saying things, but we don't know if the deeds will follow their words. Will fear of becoming a pariah state without international recognition or funds play into their calculations regarding treatment of girls, women, the media, civil society, How do you see things going forward? It's a great question. We all want to know the answer. I don't know the answer. They're making a lot of statements that sound good. I haven't seen them do anything yet. It's too early. They're in the early period of a revolutionary takeover, which is always chaotic. What we know is that they want something close to the emirate, but not exactly what that means. And we also know that they're going to face major problems of governance that Afghans have learned to want a lot of services, health and education and things which, whatever their flaws, were a lot more than they had before. So the Taliban are going to have an interesting problem figuring out how to provide some of that. And if they don't provide it, that may be a basis for violence in the future. So there's just a hundred questions out there. I think speculation is actually kind of useless. I think it's a matter of We wait, we see, we collect, and we analyze in a clear-eyed way without preconceptions. I think you're absolutely right, but it doesn't stop those of us here (laughs) from uh, trying to understand what might happen. So let me turn to you, Michael Kugelman. As I alluded to in the question, you know, 20 years, the Taliban may or may not have changed, but the country certainly has. Girls are used to going to school. Women are working. There's a very vibrant media There's all kinds of uh, civil society organizations. If the Taliban doesn't permit women or girls to go to school or women to work or a free press to operate, do you think there might be a grassroots resistance? And what kind of leverage do you think the United States and the international community have over the Taliban? Yeah, a great set of questions right there. It's quite clear that the fundamental ideology and worldview of the Taliban has not and will not change. That it will continue to use the same draconian interpretation of Sharia law that it had used back in the 90s. And Ambassador Newman said, it's not a good thing to speculate. I agree. But I think there are some useful data points that we can look to that provide clear evidence of what to expect from the Taliban's governance. And that would be the various areas of Afghanistan that have been controlled by the Taliban over the last few years. There have been a number of researchers and media that have gone in there, and there seem to be a number of convergences around several key issues, one being that women are denied the ability to have the same public role that they are outside of Taliban areas. Girls are allowed to go to school, but only younger girls, not older girls and younger women. So clearly there are indications based on areas that the Taliban already controls that we're not going to see anything that much different. Certainly, I think some countries, including the U.S., will probably demand assurances from the Taliban on rights before agreeing to recognize or legitimize the Taliban government. Not sure that that would prompt the Taliban to actually provide those assurances, much less act on them. I imagine there'll be plenty of other countries out there, such as perhaps China, 
that would be willing to provide recognition to the Taliban government and the financial assistance that comes with that, even if they don't provide those assurances on rights. They would only be expected, I think, to provide assurances on security and counterterrorism to the likes of China. So simple answer to your question is I think there's very little leverage that the U.S. will be able to have over the Taliban, including through the use of assistance. You know, its troops on the ground have been their biggest tool of U.S. leverage, and that's gone now because the U.S. troops are on their way out. Well, on that note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. VOA will bring you more analysis on the consequences of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in the days and weeks ahead. I'd like to thank my guests, Ambassador Ronald Newman, former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan, President of the American Academy of Diplomacy, and Michael Kugelman, Deputy Director of the Asia Program at the Wilson Center. Gentlemen, thanks so much for your terrific insights. Thanks. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. America.